hot flashes, vaginal dryness, painful sex, low libido, recurrent urinary tract infections, weight gain, insomnia, orgasm. What orgasm? Menopause is a very special time, and I'm betting you've not gotten a lot of information from your own doctor. I'm Dr. Lauren Stryker, a clinical professor of obstetrics and gynecology, the medical director of the Northwestern Medicine Center for Sexual Medicine and Menopause, a practicing gynecologist, best-selling author, and a nationally recognized menopause expert. My mantra has always been, if women are given good information, they'll make good choices. And I'm here to give you the inside information on all things menopause. Every day, women tell me that they were blindsided when they started having perimenopause symptoms in their mid-40s, since they assumed that menopause was years or even a decade away. And they're pretty much shocked when I tell them that mid-40s is the normal time for estrogen levels to waver or tank altogether. But imagine if you enter menopause when you're in your 20s or 30s. For many women, that is their reality. But premature and early menopause is a topic that is rarely talked about. And women that are in that club feel isolated and often at a loss since their own doctors are usually not particularly helpful. Today, I'm joined by Dr. Hannah Short, a graduate of the University of Cambridge and a specialist in premature menopause, recognized by the British Menopause Society. And she is the author of The Complete Guide to POI and Early Menopause. So welcome, Dr. Short. Thank you very much. Thanks for having me on the podcast. And between your background and your lovely accent, it's it's obvious that you're not from here. You're joining us from the UK. So where exactly are you? And what time Um, is it there, by the way? (laughs) It's just past four o'clock in the afternoon. Not so bad. We're we're talking about the morning here. And and where are you? (laughs) I'm in Norwich, um, so in East Anglia. So on the east side, on the bit of the UK that kind of juts out towards (laughs) towards the continent. Um, So it's just about it's about an uh, um, two hours north of London. Well, I've never been to that part of the UK, and I'm hoping now that I know someone there, next time I go, I can uh, have a visit with you. Yeah, definitely. You're always welcome. <laughs> so before we get started, um, I want to emphasize to the women that are listening that, yeah, we're going to focus on women that go through menopause early, but pretty much most, if not almost all, what we're going to be discussing applies to all menopausal women, not just those who are younger than are typically seen. But what I'd like you to do, Dr. Short, is to start by explaining, because it's confusing, the terminology. Mm -hmm. So I want you to explain the difference between early menopause, premature menopause, and premature ovarian insufficiency, which is otherwise known as POI, which is in the topic of Mm -hmm. your book, of course. So take it from there. So early menopause refers to, um, a, you know, as if, if somebody has gone through menopause between the ages of 40 and 45 um, or below the age of 45. So any um, in, in the UK, at least, and I think this is applicable to the US as well, you consider it natural if your periods have stopped um, after the age of 45, the average age being about 51. But if this actually occurs between 40 and 45, you'd be considered to be an early menopause. Um, it's considered a premature menopause if your period stops below the age of 40. Um, but premature menopause also seems to, at least in the UK, comes under the umbrella of premature ovarian insufficiency, but there are differences. So premature ovarian insufficiency or POI um, is, is a state of ovarian dysfunction where you don't have adequate ovarian function. The ovaries aren't producing adequate amounts of estrogen, um, progesterone, testosterone, um, you're not ovulating every cycle or if, if at all. Um, and it, 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 it encompasses a wide range of conditions um, where there's kind of depleted um, you know, ovarian hormone output. And there's an increased risk of premature or early menopause with that condition. 
different. I think the main difference, really, or probably the easiest way to explain it, is that um, menopause implies a permanent state, whereas with POI, you can have fluctuating ovarian activity. Um, and so 5% of, of women with a diagnosis of POI may still be able to naturally conceive. Whereas if you've actually, if you are menopausal um, and it's not possible for you to have further periods uh, or a menstrual cycle, then that's not going to be a possibility. For and, you. and I think that's such an important point, the difference between early menopause, which means your ovaries are done. They are never mm -hmm. again you're going to produce estrogen or you may not have ovaries, you know, you are clearly postmenopause and that's not going to change as opposed to POI where it may seem like you're in menopause, but your ovaries or your estrogen levels may kick in for, you know, a few last hurrahs, if you will, or even sometimes completely go back to how it was before, depending on, yeah. on why this all happens. So I want to talk about the reasons that this happens, you know, certainly in, in, in my practice, the most common reason that we see that someone enters menopause early is surgical, you know, that for mm -hmm. a variety of reasons, they have removal of their ovaries at a young age, whether it's endometriosis or because they have a BRCA mutation. Um, and I think that is the most common reason for someone to have early menopause, but it's, but it's not the only reason, right? And can you talk no. about some of the other reasons? So um, early menopause, I suppose we're talking here about... I mean, I'm sorry, not early menopause, premature menopause. Premature menopause and yeah. POI, do you mean together or because there is a kind well, of... Let's do this separately. Let's, let's first talk about um, premature menopause, why mm -hmm. someone would enter premature menopause other than a surgical remover of the ovaries. And then after that, I'd like to talk about why someone would experience POI, which is mm -hmm. not necessarily permanent. Yeah, not necessarily the same, but they can. I suppose the cause, some of the causes can be similar, can't they? So the premature menopause could occur, obviously, like you said, surgical removal of the ovaries. Um, we um, sometimes it, it can happen as a result of, of medical treatment, um, say, so potentially, you know, for cancer treatment. Um, where there's been radiation to the pelvis, um, may destroy the, the ovaries there, or chemotherapy. Um, there can also be immunotherapy and stuff that we use for some autoimmune disorders can carry similar risks. Um, it can happen with um, a, a certain, you know, where people have iron infusions and things like that, iron overload in the ovaries that can affect ovarian function and could lead to a premature menopause as well. In, I think in, in less developed parts of the world, then infection can be a, a cause of, of um, premature menopause. Um, things like mumps, um, CMV, um, HIV, these, these can be associated with having a premature menopause as well. Um, but again, they can, they can be associated with fluctuating activity as well, leading to more of a POI picture. So with POI, um, which is sometimes temporary, and you don't know that mm -hmm. a retrospective diagnosis, right? Because you don't know going forward if someone is going to start producing estrogen. But what are the typical causes of POI? Because that's not surgical. Surgical is permanent. Yeah, surgical is permanent. Surgical's but... permanent. So what are the things that might um, increase the risk of someone experiencing uh, premature ovarian insufficiency? So there can be genetic links. So um, girls who have Turner syndrome or fragile X, and there are a, a host of other kind of genetic markers which are associated with it as well, um, that then they're much more likely to develop POI, say, than somebody in the general population. Um, they, so there's lots of genetic factors that can be at play there. 
there's an association with autoimmune disease. So if, if people have a problem with their adrenal autoantibodies or thyroid, autoimmune thyroid disease, type 1 diabetes, there's an increased risk of developing POI. Um, uh, but we don't know enough about the relationship between the two. We just know that there's a higher incidence of autoimmune disease in the POI population, but how they affect each other is not entirely clear. Um Again, POI can occur as a result of medical treatment. So whether it's for ca- um, cancer or benign things, benign treatments, but if you've had chemotherapy or you've had um, you know, radio- radiation therapy, it can be enough to maybe to te- temporarily damage the ovaries or to switch off their function, but not necessarily permanent. And it might depend on, say, the type of radiation you've had or the type of chemotherapy that, that you've had. Mm-hmm. Um, and there can be, you know, other medications that can kind of affect the ovaries in, in, that, in that way as well. There's, um, there's an association with toxins in the environment, but this is... Yeah, I was going to ask you, ask you about environmental <laughs> factors because um, I'd like you to, to touch on that because smoking is one thing that I hear about all the time. Um, and I want to know how much of an impact that has. But in addition to smoking, um, I've been hearing more about endocrine disruptors. And I'm wondering if there's any research that talks about products uh, chemicals in products that are endocrine disruptors, does that increase the risk of an early menopause or premature menopause? There appears to be an association. And there was actually, I think there was a presentation at the conference we were both at back in October, the International Menopause Society, um, where somebody was looking at the endocrine disruptors. Um, so there are a ho- whole host of chemicals that are in our environment, um, in cleaning products, in you know body care products, and things like that 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 are, have been associated um, with with kind of ovarian damage and you know disruption of the hormones. But I, it's very hard to say at the moment you have to avoid this or you have to avoid yeah. that. Um, a lot of these substances um, around the world are being controlled. So I think in the European Union, for example, they're pretty strict to laws. I think that there may be in the US about this. But I, I'm not. Into, I don't want to kind of. Yeah, you know, starting, but, but yeah, because it's yeah. endocrine disruptors also for kids going through puberty, and there's yeah. a lot of other issues as well yeah. beyond this. How about I mean, even like plastics and things like that? Plastics. Yes, I just actually did a report on that about plastics and in shower curtains and and other products uh, are endocrine disruptors and actually can impact things like fibroid growth. I mean, you know. Yeah, I mean, we we definitely need more research, don't we? Because I just think even the stuff that's changed since my childhood, and okay, it was a while ago now, but. You just think how the world has changed and how mm-hmm. so much stuff is put wrapped in plastic wrap, wrap or, you know, people store their food in plastic tubs in the fridge. And I know a lot of people are much more aware of that. Well, so yeah. you don't want to scare people, but there are things in the environment that can affect this. But a lot of it's not really within our control, um, I suppose. You know, sometimes you can find stuff online, kind of have a look to see where you're getting, uh, you know, I don't know, toiletry products, say, that kind of more come from more natural substances. But it's it's not always very clear what's in, in things, is it, as well? And well, there's that, but it's also the research is really not solid, you know, in terms no. of having um, a controlled group and perspective in large numbers. So while there's concerns about this, we don't really have the hard science behind it yet. What What about smoking? Yes, yeah, smoking is definitely associated with an increased risk of POI and, and early menopause um, and can dis- disrupt the follicles in the ovaries and re- introduce fertility and things like that. So 
Um, it also has an effect on how your body metabolizes or breaks down hormones, whether they're your own or through the contraceptive pill or HRT and things like that. So, um, yes, we, we I mean, I think we all know that smoking is not recommended. <laughs> it's not recommended. All right. But let me ask you this. And I don't know if this is known, but if someone is a smoker and they have been diagnosed with POI, if they stop smoking, does that increase uh, the chances that their ovaries will kick back in and they'll start to produce estrogen? I don't think the research is there, but it's surely going to benefit them. I think if, if anything, it will improve the health of the blood flow to the ovaries. It will improve their overall well-being, their their risk of you know reduce their risk of heart disease and and all of that. So all the I think, good stuff. yeah, yeah, all the good stuff. So and it certainly would increase the risk of oh the the, the sorry the chance of conceiving if if that was something they wanted to do because that the health of their body uh, you know would, would be improved. I think there's research showing the cilia and the fallopian tubes are affected, aren't they, by smoking? So you'll you're not necessarily going to kind of have, um, you know, even if you do produce an egg and stuff, it's it's more likely to be a successful conception if you're not smoking. Yes. And I think a lot of people wonder how, what is this connection? You know, why is it that smoking causes problems that have nothing to do with the lungs? And and the reason is, is that we know that smoking causes uh, premature aging throughout the body in pretty much every organ system because it's um, women that smoke, they don't have adequate blood flow. And as you mentioned, very often there's an adequate blood flow to the ovaries, which in turn can increase the risk of um, ovarian insufficiency. So, so now that we've talked about this, um, most people, I think, listening to this, unless they've already been diagnosed, really are not familiar with it. So is there like this whole secret society out there? How many women actually have uh, premature menopause or uh, premature ovarian insufficiency? So the numbers that we normally can't, you probably hear about, if, if anybody hears about it, is that it affects uh, at least one in a hundred women and girls um, below the age of 40. Um, but actually, we think that is an underestimate. And more recent research puts the figure globally around three and a half percent. So, you know, over three, three girls and women over the age of, uh, sorry, under the age of 40 out of 100 will, will be affected by POI. That's huge. Um, I mean, that's actually because I've always kind of quoted the one percent. And if it's more like three percent, that's an enormous, enormous segment of our population that is at, at risk. And let's talk about the risk, because certainly when women are not um, producing estrogen and they're not ovulating, they're not releasing an egg at the top of the list of things why this is upsetting is that they're no longer able to get pregnant or have a baby unless they use a donor egg. But it goes way beyond that in terms of health implications. So why is it so important to diagnose these conditions and to treat women who have these conditions? I mean, yeah, it's hugely important. And I think even the, even the, the 3% or 3.5% of them may even be an underestimate again, in terms of depending on where you are in the world, because the King, King's College did a study and said it was closer to 7%. This is a, a few years ago now. And in parts of rural India, it's been peaked around 20%. But I think they're including women who've gotten through the permanent premature menopause as a higher rate of, you know, ovary removal there. But um, yeah, coming back to your question, the, the reason it's so important 
um, is, is one, obviously, many of these girls and women will be affected by their symptoms, um, you, which can be very similar to menopausal symptoms um, as a result of kind of low levels of estrogen, um, which I mean, obviously we can go through, but it's, that's one thing. The other thing is, um, it, you know, we may be able to improve chances of conception if fertility is a concern with the use of things like hormone replacement therapy. But the other thing is when, when your estrogen levels drop, you increase the risk of heart disease, osteoporosis, diabetes dementia, Parkinson's disease, um, there's, there's quite serious consequences if things, if it's not picked up and, and the people aren't treated. So, you know, I, I think that that's really the, the key point here, because certainly I have, you know, many, many segments where I'm talking about the impact of menopause on heart disease um, and the bones and all of that. And what we have here is that same situation only dramatically worse because these women are without estrogen far younger and for a much longer period of time. I mean, if we talk the typical time for a woman to enter menopause is 51 and assuming that she doesn't take hormone therapy with life expectancy, we're looking about 30 to 40 years without estrogen. But if she's 20 or 30, then we are looking at decades more. And, uh, and, and that's huge. And I, I think, um, the heart disease statistics alone are, you know, so critically important in terms of supporting treating early and, and continuing hormone therapy. So, so my question now is, um, you know, you're, you're the expert, of course, and, and this is what you do every single day, all day. But do you find that most physicians are even aware of this data, uh, the heart issues, the, um, the risks of, of going through an early menopause, because I'm assuming that the women that you see in your practice are referred by other physicians. Is that true? Or are they self-referred? They find their way to you on their own because their own physicians weren't helping them? Um, uh, to be honest, a lot of it's the latter. Um, um, be, because although I do get referrals from other clinicians, um, a lot of the time it is the latter because I, unfortunately there's still a large number of clinicians who don't recognise the importance of this or the diagnosis may not even be on their radar. Because I think a lot of the time in, in younger women in their 20s and 30s and, and, and actually in late teens and things like that, if they're having problems with their periods um, or they're having they're experiencing you know palpitations or hot sweats and, and you know mood changes and things like that, they're often told, oh, it's probably just stress or you've got a lot on. Maybe you're studying or you're busy, maybe, you know, maybe being a new mum. So because sometimes this can occur, you know, POI can arise after pregnancy, for example. Yeah. Um, so you know, if, if somebody's a new mum and then they're and, and then they're suddenly you know flawed by symptoms as a result of POI, they'll be said, oh well, it's because you're exhausted. You've got a toddler. You've got this. And often women are dismissed and kind of sidelined from that point of view. No, I mean, I've, got, I, I've seen that as well. The women who are dismissed and they're basically just told you're too young. Yeah, to go too young. Yeah. So this and, is crazy, isn't it? But yeah, and I mean, it doesn't happen when someone has a surgical menopause. I will say that. Yeah. But for the women that do not have a surgical menopause, they're basically just brushed off. So when we look at the, the typical menopause population in the you know mid 40s to mid 50s when women enter menopause, right now in the U.S., mm, roughly six to seven percent of women are treated. I don't know if it's the same in the U.K. I suspect it's higher, but it's really low here. So, so my question for you is: when you look at the premature menopause population. Are those numbers the same, lower, higher? I mean, are they all going undiagnosed or, and you know, or are they actually getting their hormone therapy or it's all over the map or who knows? I think we genuinely don't know. I often see 
young women who have gone for years trying to get the right diagnosis or being treated with inadequate hormone therapy because they're being treated as though they're a woman of, in her 50s in natural menopause. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it, it's really, really hard to know. I mean, there's the POI registry, which is um, um, something being set up in the UK to try and kind of gather data to see, you know, how many people in the UK at least, and I think hopefully globally as well, are being diagnosed with POI. But it's, it's yeah, just... Yeah, but that's going to be a biased anyway because yeah. people that are going to the registry are people who have been diagnosed the people exactly. have no idea why they're not getting periods or not are not in the registry i think we're missing huge numbers of this so it, it's it, it's it's really it's hard to say how many are being undiagnosed because we just don't know how many people are out are out there and i see a lot of the women i see in my practice are naturally menopausal or natural menopausal age some of them will you realise that they haven't had periods for twenty years, so they will have had a diagnosis of POI or premature menopause. That, and they'll say they often describe how their periods started petering out in their early twenties, and then they've just told to get on with it. There wasn't really anything that could be done, but they're coming now much further down the line because they're worried about their heart, they're worried about their bones. Right, they're they starting to, to hear that, that there are they problems. What else they can do, and in terms of the women with surgical menopause that's happened at an early age. Yes, I think people will say, yes, you're in a surgical menopause, but they're still not being treated correctly. They're not not getting, and most of the time, they don't get adequate treatment. And I've still met young women who've been refused HRT, even though they've got um, surgical menopause. Even yeah, we, we, we experience the same thing here, and it, it is astonishing. When a woman comes to our center and she's, say, 48, 49, and we prescribe hormone therapy for her, and you know, generally it's a very, very low dose of estrogen and uh, and something to protect the lining of the uterus, a progestogen, and they're, they're very low doses. I mean, it's, it's really just to get rid of the symptoms, protect the bones, the heart, and all of that. So if you have a woman who walks in your door who's 30, and she has a surgical premature menopause. Do you treat her with the same kind of doses of hormone therapy or do you give her something different? Normally, I find these women require higher doses, but it really depends on the individual. And I guess it depends when they come and see me. If I'm the first person to prescribe them HRT or hormone therapy, I would um, give them, you know, I'd probably start at a regular dose just because otherwise I find side effects and stuff can can be quite problematic. But I'd see a lot of women who have hormone sensitivity disorders like, from you know, um, premenstrual, sorry, I was about having a brain fog here. <laughs> Premenstrual dysphoric disorder, for example, PMDD and stuff. So we have to be slightly careful. Which is a form of severe PMS. Yeah, a very severe form of PMS affecting like five to eight percent of women. And so with them, I've still up. But also, if they if they haven't had estrogen for a while, suddenly give, giving them a high dose, they may experience like you no know, severe breast tenderness or headaches and stuff. I prefer to kind of build them up. But ultimately, a lot of the time, we do need to give them higher doses. And I do find that women who have been treated are often on baby doses. So we can yeah. maybe give the same dose you'd give a woman in her late 50s or early 60s. Yeah. Um, and so that's why they're not feeling well, um, you, know, they're, they're, you know, not having a good quality of life. So it really depends on the on the individual. But I, I do find that we do need to go higher. I don't know if you well, the same thing. Yeah, and when we think in terms of higher, of course, what what really comes to mind are birth control pills, which are significantly higher uh, in, than uh, hormone therapy is. And I don't know if you do this, but but I see a number of young women who are having removal of their ovaries prophylactically because they have a genetic mutation, such as a BRCA mutation. And very often they were on birth control pills prior to their surgery, 
And I will sometimes just keep them on their birth control pills after Mm -hmm. surgery for a period of time so that they don't go through that instant surgical menopause. And so my question to you is, is number one, is that a strategy that you use? And then at what point do you switch them from birth control pills to lower dose hormone therapy? I mean, I think that's a a reasonable approach and it's one that I would use a lot of the time. But a lot of the women I see are quite concerned about, especially if it's not surgical, if it's more of a POI picture, if they're wanting, if they're concerned about fertility, it wouldn't go down that route, obviously. Um, again, I see quite a lot of people who have, it, it, they struggle with progestogen side effects. I think it's because my other area of interest is premenstrual disorders. Yeah. Um, and so often they want the estrogen only if they've had, if they've had a, their uterus removed as well. And it's, and it's not just a said, you know, it's not. That makes it easy when they've had their uterus yeah. removed yeah. and you can just get <laughs> estrogen alone. Um, and do you do put IUDs in the uterus uh, for women who do have a uterus who are having a hard time with the progestin? Because that's something we do. Yeah. It's off label. Um, but we find that that's a nice workaround. Yes, definitely. Definitely. For those, although I find quite hard to persuade women to go down that route. I don't know if you have that. A lot of women are quite resistant in the UK to having um, the the IUS and, and stuff like that because they've read horror stories or their friends told them they yeah. had a terrible time. Right. But yeah, so do, just to be clear, because in the, in the US, um, in the UK, IUS stands for intrauterine system, which is a much friendlier way of saying intrauterine device, IUD, but it is the exact same thing. Oh, okay. Sorry. I didn't realize the term. <laughs> Um, let's, let's talk a little bit about um, POI, because as you have pointed out, POI is not the same as premature menopause. The ovaries may be producing some estrogen. Someone may get pregnant, which is lovely if they want to, but not so lovely if they don't. So um, what do you do as far as a woman who has POI and she is having symptoms, you know, hot flashes and um, and difficulty with vaginal dryness and not feeling well? How do you treat that woman if she does not want to get pregnant? So explain the reasons, obviously, why treatment is important, Um, because a lot of the younger women I see, they hear scare stories. I mean, a a lot of the myths around, um, you know, hormone therapy and stuff like that, and they worry that will apply to them. Um, Although we know that the risks are minimal in even in naturally menopausal women and that the benefits tend to outweigh any of the risks. So we talk about that. Um, and then I've just discussed the options and I will discuss the, the pill often as an option, especially because you, if, if you have your ovaries and you have a diagnosis of POI, there is a chance of conception. So actually either using something like the IUS or IUD with estrogen on top, um, would, would I would kind of go down that route or trying, which I think would probably be the best thing often for a lot of people because you, um, you know, you kind of get that hormonal stability, don't you? If you've got the progestogen, you know, containing like the marina coil or something over here, and then you add in some estrogen on top, that's obviously a, often quite a good way to, to go. But the, the pill, um, the concept of pill as well, I think is, 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 is a very good option. I think there's just a little little bit of data saying that maybe it's better for bone health to have the um, estradiol from the hormone therapy rather than the ethanol estradiol that is in is in the birth control pills but now we have got birth control pills that contain estradiol so i think we can right. kind of have the best of both worlds so i discussed those options and then it t- what fits in with the woman's lifestyle really yeah but i think that's the thing that makes this tricky to treat and why you it needs to be someone who has expertise because we're not just looking at symptoms we're looking at heart health we're looking at bone health we're looking at sexual health you know we're looking at all these long-term issues beyond 
um, you know, just dealing with someone's hot flashes and inability to sleep at the moment. And I think, you know, one of the challenges in treating all of this early menopause, et cetera, is that, I mean, let's face it, most of the research that has been done with hormone therapy and treatment of menopause is not even women over the age of 50. Usually it's women over the age of 60. I mean, certainly when we look at the WHI data, that big study that I talk about all the time from 20 years ago, 70% of the women in that study were over age 65. And yet that data is very often extrapolated to younger women, which is crazy. I mean, it's, it's completely, you know, has one has nothing to do with the other. You can't compare a 65 year old to a 30 year old and in terms of how they're going to respond to hormone therapy. So, um, so that's a big challenge. And, and so my question is, 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 is that changing? Is there more research going on right now? Or are you still just kind of forced to rely on, on the data that really speaks to older women? I think there's still a lot of reliance on that data. And also, I think there have there have been studies, haven't there, you know, with women who've had their ovaries removed at an early age and showing that there's an increased risk um, of, you know, things like heart disease and dementia when Parkinson, if, you know, if, if hormones aren't replaced. But we haven't got any big, wide-ranging trials on that. There is the POISE study, which is going on in the UK now uh, with Melanie Davis. It's looking at the role of hormone therapy in POI patients. But... Um, we we don't really have a lot of good data, and I think that's part that's part of the problem. So, but we can, I suppose, we can extrapolate in terms of we know that it, you know hormone therapy does reduce the risk of cardiovascular disease um, and osteoporosis in the naturally menopausal population. Um, therefore, we can kind of infer that that's going to happen to to you know for younger women. But what we don't know is what doses these women need. Um, you know, how long should they be on it for, and things like that. I so, mean, how long they should be on it is is really critically important because when we look at the women who are over 50, they are sometimes inappropriately told that they need to go off at five years, even though there's no data to support that. And I think you and I are on the same page and that mm-hmm. we don't take people off their hormone therapy, um, just, you know, this arbitrary five-year mark. And in fact, generally continue on in, until death, unless there's a reason and yeah. they will live longer because they've been on hormone therapy. But um I, I bump into this all the time with these young women that sometimes after surgery, they are put on hormone therapy at age 30. And then at 35, they're told, well, you've been on it for five years. It's time to go off now. Does that make you crazy? Oh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, I just and I don't even know where that thinking comes from other than I suppose it's, uh, you know, clinicians who are not properly informed. But it doesn't make any sense if you're thinking about the hormones is a true replacement for the hormones right. that you, your body should naturally have. And if you think you naturally have a decent supply of estrogen until around the age of 50, mm-hmm. it makes sense that we're replacing this in these younger women. Um, I mean, there is, I mean, in the UK, we've got the nice guidelines on on kind of menopause and, and including kind of POI. And it's they're very clear that we should be, you know, continue, continuing to at least the age of natural menopause. And then we've got the ESHRA guidelines. I don't, do, do you have specific guidelines? guidelines in the US on POI or I mean, there's certainly guidelines that are put up by the North American Menopause Society and and uh, and in agreement with everything that you're saying that we do not arbitrarily stop. And at the age of a natural menopause, we can discuss it, but there's no reason to take someone off. And I think it really depends, doesn't it? If somebody's had a surgical menopause, um, I think there's an argument really for keeping on long term therapy anyway. But I, 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 I so very high risk women. 
Yeah, and and I and I just and I I don't really understand. We must get people off therapy. We must, which is some still seems to abound when some clinicians that seems to be their viewpoint. But um, I don't. It's it's hard to kind of know exactly why they're thinking that. And I'm trying to kind of educate other healthcare professionals. Say there's more of a risk with a woman going on and off HRT than there is staying on HRT long term. Um, obviously, not everybody wants to take medication long term. There are some women who just don't they don't they don't want that. And I think I suppose we have to listen to yeah. them. But I think we have to get away from thinking of it as medication. If someone has their thyroid gland removed, mm-hmm. you don't say you're going to take thyroid replacement for five years and then you're going to stop. No, I know. <laughs> you know, but I mean, that's how you and I think about it. But I, I think we need to kind of shift the way that it's that it's um, being regarded in general. That's true. Yeah, that's true. Well, can I just one thing I suppose that in this conversation I think it's important is a lot that some of the women who do end up in uh, you know premature ovarian insufficiency or a surgical or medical menopause um, you know some of them may not be able to take HRT if if it's for an estrogen dependent cancer so and there are things that you can kind of do to still reduce your risk and improve your bone health and your heart health and and improve symptoms because I think they're often kind of overlooked and no, I'm so glad you brought that up because we've been focusing so much on hormone therapy and there's women out there saying wait a minute I have breast cancer I can't take hormone therapy and and certainly in your book which i'm gonna get to now um your book you have tons of information on non-hormonal options in order to make sure that someone does not run into problems in terms of heart health and bone health and sexual health so so let's talk about your book um i love your book I really do and and that's rare for me because when i read other people's books very often i find myself saying really and that's not how i would do it and you know where did that come from and i had the exact opposite reaction to your book was like yes yes you know i'm like basically pumping my fist saying this is this is exactly what i tell people um and it's and it is really good and it and it is available in the us and the only thing i will mention is that because you are in the uk some of the products um, that you mentioned are not available. You have a lot more products than we do, but it doesn't matter. You know, it's the concepts, even if the products are not exactly the same. So what motivated you to specialize this and, and to write the book? Uh, it's been a long-term aim, I suppose. Um, my interest in this area, because I, I originally trained as a general practitioner, so a family doctor in the UK, although prior to that I had done some psychiatry training. I've always been interested in kind of women's health and mental health and things like that. But um, So I'm naturally always kind of interested in this area, but but I personally went through a premature surgical menopause when I was 35 um, because I had endometriosis that wasn't responsive to you know, all the other treatments and I tried numerous things, including, you know, birth control pills and the the, the IUS. I'd had several surgeries. I'd tried different diets, different acupuncture. I really wasn't getting anywhere with this. Um, and um, I also experienced quite severe premenstrual anxiety. Um so uh, I basically I'd never had never had fun with my with my menstrual cycle. Your uterus was not your friend. It was not my friend. I mean, ever since the age of thirteen, I struggled with pain or mood changes, and uh, it essentially reached the end of the road. And it was when I was a junior doctor. I went to med school quite late, and in the UK we normally go to med school at eighteen. And I went at twenty seven after I'd done another degree and worked in another career for a bit. And I was I think it was working as a junior doctor with the rotors and no sleep, and you know. No, I didn't have a good lifestyle because it just didn't allow me to have that exacerbated. It ended up culminating in me needing the surgery. And although it ultimately it, it was been the right thing for me, and thankfully my pain symptoms have hugely diminished. Well, they're, they're pretty much gone. Um, yeah. It 
you know, and, and obviously the premenstrual anxiety, um, it was a bit of a wake up call because I naively thought, oh, surgical menopause, this is going to be straightforward. You take out all the problem bits, you just give me some hormones and then I'll just go on my way and hadn't really appreciated quite how hard hitting surgical menopause could be. Um, and it wasn't, I mean, I'm, I'm lucky that I had, a, you know, access to a good gynecologist. Um, and I think also being medical, I was able to do some of my own research and, you know, I was in a privileged position, I suppose, in that way. But it really opened my eyes to how poorly we manage menopause in the UK and and POI. Um, so that that's kind of where my personal and professional interest kind of came in. I started um, kind of liaising with the British Menopause Society, was um, kind of worked on their journal as a kind of junior editor and, and things like that for a while. And that's kind of how I got introduced to that world. And I just realised what a need there was um, really in terms of educating healthcare professionals, particularly both in natural menopause and POI. Um, and it's just over over the years, I've kind of met like-minded people. So that's how I met my co-author, um, Mandy. We met by Twitter, actually, because she lives in another part of the UK. And um, we did a menopause cafe together. It's a, I don't know if you have these in the US, but like a community kind of pop-up um, session where women can come. And it's not supposed to really be an educational session, so much as a, a space for women to, to, to talk and share their experiences. I feel but, so alone. So, yeah. Not feel so, long. so since the book came out, do you feel like women are coming out of the woodwork? Like they're grateful that someone is finally addressing this? It's like, thank God someone is talking about me. Have you found that? And um, we've certainly had some really good feedback. So um, I, I'm not really on Instagram, but for example, Mandy, my co-author is, and she's got multiple messages from people saying, thank you for writing this book. And um, you know, one of the reasons we wanted to write the book was because you know, not everybody's going to have access to be able to see clinicians who specialise in this area. You know, there's huge waiting lists in the UK to kind of see general, to get to general menopause clinics, which is normally where these women would kind of go and see. But this does helps. And I think sometimes patients have said to me that they've taken the book to their general practitioner to uh, to kind of, you know, to explore things with them. So I think it's made, it, it's women are, I think, grateful that something, we've written something that they feel that, that is of practical use as, as well as hopefully is supportive as well because we yeah. share. I mean, it's, it's more than validating. It's, I mean, it's like you said, it's very, very practical. I mean, and one of the reasons I like your book is because it's very much like my book and that it's solution oriented. It's yeah. okay, this is what's going on. This is why it's going on. And here are your solutions. And it's very, very comprehensive. I mean, you really, it's, it's a big book, but, mm -hmm. and it's the kind of book that, you know, someone may not read every single page of it. They're going to read what's pertinent to them, but, but it is all there. It's, it's really terrific. So what, what would you like to leave women with? What have we not talked about that you would like to, to discuss? <sighs> I think, I mean, it's hard because there's so much you, you could kind of say, isn't there, about the whole topic. Um, and I suppose one of the reasons maybe people might want to know why we put POI and early menopause in the same book is that although they're not entirely the, always the same thing, there are so many similarities in that the issues relating to the you know lack of ovarian hormones are, are pertinent to to everybody within that group, and whether it's from symptoms or whether it's you know to do with their long term health. And I think it's to try and bring everything together and and show that you, why like hormone replacement is is very important if you're able to take it, but if you're not, don't despair because there are lots of other things you can do both medically and from a diet and lifestyle perspective because that's hugely important. Obviously, we haven't had time to talk about that, but you know, manage you know saying physically active eating a high fiber diet you know plenty of fruits and vegetables that kind of thing minimizes it makes a difference yeah. it makes a huge difference and um 
you know, having social social support and connection, finding passion in, in your life, what you can do, addressing concerns about, you know, sex and intimacy, because that's a huge thing. You know, you don't expect to be struggling with that when you're 22. Yeah. Um, you know, and how do you broach these things in a new relationship? How do you relate to your peers? It's I suppose we just want women not to feel alone, which is why we wrote the book, but also to just say, not just to say, yes, this is what's going on, but also to say this is what you can kind of do about it. Um, I suppose we wanted to bring it all together in that book so nobody did feel like left out. I, I know, you know, we could have probably made the book double the size. We had to draw the line somewhere. Yeah. We do have further links to kind of other resources because everybody's situation is different. If you have your ovaries removed because of PMDD, it's very different to somebody right. who's 19 and going but through. But that's why it's so important to see someone who has expertise in this. But and we didn't get to a lot. We didn't get to the emotional aspects. We didn't get to the sexual aspects. I remember one patient that, that I saw. Um, she was 24 years old and she had POI as a result of chemotherapy. And so her mother came with her to the menopause mm. clinic and her mother was glued to her side and we could not get rid of her mother. And finally, my, my wonderful nurse practitioner came up with some ruse to get the mother out of the room so I could turn to this young woman and say, OK, let's talk about sex. And she's like, thank God, you know, and I yeah. can't talk about this in front of my mother. Um, but, but we forget that these young women, that sexuality is it's important to all women, but particularly in, in that group. And we also we didn't talk about getting pregnant, which is also in your book. It's all there. So <laughs> check the program notes because I will have links to not only the book, but mm -hmm. to a lot of other things that you are doing and how to find you. And I thank you so much for for joining me today and coordinating your schedule so that neither one of us was in the middle of the night. And no, thank you. I'm grateful to being on the, on the podcast. So, and thank you for all the work that you do as well. I'm Dr. Lauren Stryker, and thank you for joining me. You will find lots more information in my Inside Information books available on Amazon.com. And follow Francie as she navigates her way through vaginal dryness, hot flashes, and pretty much every menopausal symptom you can think of. Yeah.